I'm Jeff Cohen. Judy Gruen is an award-winning journalist, book editor, and the author of five books. Her work has appeared in well-known publications like the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, and the Chicago Tribune, as well as many Jewish publications like H.com and Jewish Action. She also has a rather unique story to share about her journey from Saturday to Shabbos. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here, and I really do appreciate the opportunity. Likewise, we're very happy to have you here. So before we jump into your story, because I've had a chance to look through some of your memoir, I know that your grandparents had an influence on your life and your story. So just give our listeners a sense of their stories and where they grew up. Well, my grandparents form the backdrop for my whole story, really. My father's father and stepmother who were my grandparents, were complete atheists. And my mother's parents came from Europe, and my grandfather, who came from Poland, from a typical Orthodox family, became a conservative rabbi here in the the early 1930s. And so I had these diametrically opposite and often really opposed sets of grandparents, and I loved them all. And each set of grandparents had something that the other was lacking. My religious grandparents had a sense of a certain gravitas, but that they had a Jewishness that my secular grandparents didn't have, but my secular grandparents had a certain sense of fun and worldliness, and it all appealed to me. I was trying to make sense of trying to figure out Is there some kind of life path for me where I can fuse the best of their worlds? And so the grandparents who were more religious, were they living what you would consider like a traditional observant lifestyle? They were. They were conservative, meaning they, uh, when my mother was being raised, my mother and my aunt, they didn't drive on Shabbos or anything. But as the years went by, they started making some accommodations. They would drive, but only to shul on Shabbos. But other things, you know, you you could see kind of the slippery slope. Somehow they let my mother go to like the Bund or something like that. I couldn't figure that out. Although I guess they had to let her go because she met my father there. He was a handsome lifeguard (laughs) and they got married and they had to get married because, well, they had to get married and produce this family. So, yeah. So when the two of them met, how would you describe where each of them were from an observant perspective? My mother already was not Shomerit Shabbat. My grandparents were first-generation Americans, and as much as Judaism meant to them, and it meant everything, it really did, but they came from a Europe where they were oppressed, where there were pogroms. That was real to them. They had relatives slaughtered in the Holocaust. They wanted their children to be American Jewish and American, and they could not possibly have foreseen what we have seen, which is the rapid slide once you started letting things go. I'm not judging them. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying what I've been able to see in retrospect. So at the point that your parents meet, they're basically both secular Jews. And so is is that kind of informed the way that you were raised? Well, my mother kept a kosher home to an extent. I mean, she always, we had separate sets of dishes and she always bought kosher meat, always. 
but they went out to any old restaurant and they'd bring home the leftovers. So, you know, things kind of got a little uh, mixed up, shall we say. And then we had a terrible family tragedy when my brother died in a car accident. And my father, who was never on close terms with God to begin with, well, that was that. You know, he never set foot in a synagogue again other than for my bat mitzvah and, uh, you know, weddings and things. But that was that. But in that story you just mentioned about mitzvah, does, does that mean that you went to Hebrew school at some point? Yeah, I was very involved in my conservative synagogue. It was my home away from home, especially when our home became a sad place. I loved being at the synagogue. I loved everybody there. Everybody, it was. It felt like real mishpacha. It it really was my home away from home, and I was involved in USY, and then I became. Um, youth group leader. I mean, I was all over that synagogue. And it was a very wonderful experience. So in a lot of these stories, though, you hear when someone hits the age of their bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, that's kind of the end of the line of their Judaism if they're more or less secular. So does your story follow that same trajectory? Or were you staying involved even past your bar mitzvah into the high school years? Very much so. I was involved in a lot of extracurricular Jewish activities. There were weekly classes that had certain themes, and at the end of a six-week theme, we would have a Shabbaton. This was when we were in ninth grade. It was a very popular program that ran in Los Angeles for many years, and it gave, it was just, it was a wonderful, warm feeling. There was singing in our camp. It was a place called Camp Hilltop in Malibu. It was lovely. We were looking over the ocean and singing together. There was we didn't have singing like that in our synagogue, you know. So it was it really was very spiritual. So as you're experiencing this and you're being drawn to kind of the energy and the community of it all, is any part of you thinking, oh, I could take this a step further and maybe become observant, or is that not on the radar at this stage of your life? It was never on the radar. Never, because my religious grandparents, who I called Nana and Papa, they were so serious. And I thought, they're so serious and they're just conservative. I can't imagine how (laughs) serious you'd have to be to be Orthodox. So I know that that's so simplistic, but that's kind of how I saw it. I also didn't know anybody who was Orthodox. You know, at this program when we were in ninth grade, one weekend a year, they'd bring up some Chabad people. And it was like they brought them like for show and tell almost, you know. So they were, you know, yeah, they're going to dance because they're Chabad. That's what they do. They they dance and they sing. But they didn't seem to me like real possible role models. Although there was a boy in the program who, astoundingly, he came from a reform background and not didn't even live in such a Jewish neighborhood like I did. And he decided on his own to become Orthodox, and he was wearing a kippah and tzitzit in ninth grade and asking his parents to send him to Israel. And I remember speaking to him many times. I was very impressed with him. He was so thoughtful, and I was not that thoughtful. I mean, I wasn't. I admired him, but I couldn't see it for myself. We have to have him on the podcast now. That sounds like an interesting story, too. If I too. could find him, I only remember his <laughs> first name, but I hope all went well for him. So let's talk about the writing side of you, which I mentioned in the intro. Did you know as a kid, like, this is what I want to be doing? Like, did you see that talent in yourself at a young age? Yes, I did. I was always drawn to books, to writing. 
the flip side of that was that I was always terrible at anything in this, we call it STEM these days. Anything with numbers, unless you tell me something's 50% off, I got that pretty fast. <laughs> but um, math and science just left me confused and alienated. I just wanted to live in the world of words. And I, I did. My secular grandmother, who was a doctor, a physician, which was pretty rare in her generation, she told me when I was maybe eight years old, she said, I know you're going to grow up to be a writer. She was the first person to tell me that. And it gave me such a thrill. But I knew she was right. And it was the only thing I was you know, passionate about in terms of what I could see myself doing. And all these years later, okay, decades, I'm, I still feel the same way. That actually reminds me when I was in sleepaway camp at age 13, I wrote a letter to my grandma back when people wrote letters. And she wrote back to me and said, if there's one thing I can take from this letter is that you should be a writer. And I'll never forget that. I, like you, I've done five books. And I think it kind of goes back to someone believing you and seeing that talent, maybe even before you realize that it could be a career. Yeah, I didn't know you were a writer. I'm going to have to check out your books. Yeah, so that would be a different podcast. We'll get into the books that we've both done. But uh, let's continue with your story. So you know that you want to be a writer. Are you thinking you're going to be an author? Are you thinking you're going to be a journalist? Like, did you know or you just said it's going to be something to do with words? I love journalism, and even from my freshman year at UCLA, I, uh, I tell this story in the, in the blog that I'm writing now, a blog series called Chasing the Byline, which is kind of a retrospective about my career. And I went into the office of the Jewish student paper, and I said, I want to write an article. You know, give me an, an, assi- <laughs> uh, give me an assignment. Here I am. <laughs> you know, and that was uh, the first hard lesson I learned because uh, the editor gave me an assignment. I did it. I was proud of it for some unknown reason, no, youthful arrogance and overconfidence, maybe from my grandparents, I turned it over thinking it was perfect. And when I saw it in print, it was nothing like I had turned in and I was incensed. So, but I was never going to give up on it. I thought, all right, I have a lot to learn. So, and from there, I got a journalism internship in New York, a Jewish journalism internship from a program that also no longer exists. And I learned so much. And then I went into healthcare writing. I, then I went to get a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern. Um, so yeah, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of healthcare. That's how my career started. And with my grandmother, who was a doctor, I, I also was very interested in healthcare, including alternative healthcare, because she was not only an MD, she was a homeopath and an acupuncturist. So she was incredibly radical. And I loved that radical side of her. (laughs) So and I can hear clearly how your writing career is starting to come together as you're doing it in these different industries. What role is religion playing for you at this point in your life? I loved being Jewish, but it, it was a sense of identity for sure. Again, it was not religious. One of the story assignments I had this summer in New York when I was working for the Jewish student press service, the Balchua movement was very young, but it was starting to happen. And I went into Williamsburg to interview a young Balas Chuva. And I, I had to buy a long sleeve blouse. And it was July. And the D train wasn't 
air conditioned. And I thought, <laughs> you've got to be religious to dress like this in New York in the summer. So it was kind of more anthropological for me. Again, there was something I really admired. I saw that they were thoughtful people. I saw that they had had the, the courage to really change their lives. But I considered myself a feminist, and I, I wanted to marry Jewish, of course, have a family, and write about Jewish things. But, you know, like, to here and no more. So why do you think at that point, you just mentioned wanting to marry Jewish. Why was that important to you? Like, I think about my friends who unfortunately, like, we were all raised secular, and unfortunately, many of them just chose to marry not Jewish, because it just wasn't a priority, or it wasn't something their parents kind of instilled in them. So why was that important to you? Nearly all my friends growing up were Jewish, even though I went to public school. And so there were lots of non-Jews in public school, but I just sort of gravitated toward them. There felt a certain cultural and even, I'd say, a psychological commonality. And then in college, I got very involved in Jewish activities. I lived in a Jewish co-ed co-op, which wasn't exactly so kosher in certain ways. But I, I always just felt that gravitational pull. These were my people. I always felt Jews are my people. This is who I am. But don't ask me not to go to the movies on Saturday. <laughs> I hear that. And that's how I grew up also. So uh, I'm wondering for you, who was circling around all these Jewish things, more so than, say, a typical secular Jew who might just have, say, a typical corporate job and religion is either on the back burner or they're doing a couple of things on Rosh Hashanah, but you, you are circling around in a lot of different ways, things that you're reporting on, connections you're still having. But how does that over time become more significant than just circling around where it's going to become a deeper part of your life? Oh, well, that's when I met my husband, Jeff. We met, I was working at UCLA doing all kinds of healthcare writing. It was a fabulous job. I was very happy. And I get this call from a guy named Jeff who had just come back from a year in Israel. He got my number from a mutual friend and he was new in town. He wanted to know, can we get together just to meet, have coffee or something? We get together. I liked him right away. I had had my heart broken, of course, a few times, gotten over the last one, but there had been nobody new on the horizon. And I, I we met, we started talking. He told me about Israel. I had been to Israel a few times. I loved Israel. And we just had a certain connection, but he told me that he was uh, very interested in this Orthodox shul on the beach, Pacific Jewish Center. He grew up way more secular than me. I mean, he had nothing. He didn't even know where Israel was until a Christian friend of his in college said, you ought to go to Israel. And he said, well, why would I want to do that? You know, I'll go to Dublin. You know, don't tell me to go to Jerusalem. He didn't even know where it was. So... I went home thinking, why is there something wrong with every single guy I go out with? <laughs> this one wants to become orthodox. But he was just so terrific to be with. I thought, well, let's just go out one more time. Let's just go out one more time. Well, a few months after we were going out, I decided I'm going to go get a master's degree, which made no sense because I had a wonderful job. I could have kept growing in that job. But we needed to be apart for a year because otherwise I think we would have split up for good and we had to get married and have our family. <laughs> so I had to go away for a while and think things out. 
So really, it was Jeff, and a lot of my memoir, The Skeptic and the Rabbi, talks. it's also a love story. It's a love story uh, between Jeff and me and between Judaism and me and a growing appreciation of what our faith really taught, which I realized I didn't really know. There were so many fundamental ideas that were Jewish that I didn't even know were Jewish. And when I discovered them, I actually have a chill right now just thinking about it. I felt I felt that I'd been cheated of part of my birthright. Not just my birthright, all of us who grew up in that way. We didn't know that we believed that the soul is eternal. That would have given me so much solace after my brother died. And just other things, so many other things that we just hadn't been taught in Hebrew school or confirmation or this or that. So let me dig a little deeper on the relationship piece. So you, you meet Jeff. Why is he so intent on becoming Orthodox when you're when you're sitting there? What experience has he had? Because you said he was raised like more secular than you. Why is he sitting having coffee with you? So why is he saying that this is so important to him? In high school, he was kind of a jock. He was all into sports and everything. But he also knew that something was there was something bigger out there, something that he couldn't articulate. And he would ask his father, who came over as a child refugee from Germany in 1938. His father was six years old then. They barely got out. He would say to his parents, isn't there something more to life than this, more than going out Sunday night for Chinese food or you know, in the summer we go here and like, isn't there something more? And his father had no idea what he was talking about because he was a refugee and refugees were so grateful just to have been able, they thought, what more do you want? (laughs) I have freedom. We have freedom, right? And that's a, that's a common thing that you have from immigrant parents. Jeff knew there was something more, but he had no idea where to find it. And again, ironically, his uh, this Christian friend he met in junior year abroad in England, they struck up a friendship. And they started going bar hopping and taking long walks and jogging together. And this man was, young man, was very religious Christian and said to Jeff, you're Jewish. You need to go to Israel and see what it means. So he did. And uh, Mayor Schuster picked him up at the wall. You know, he's a Mayor <laughs> Schuster success story. Mm-hmm. Took him to Asia Torah. He had a chicken dinner, and he stayed at Asia Torah for a few weeks and felt it was way too overwhelming, and he left. But he knew that even though that experience had been too intense, there was something there that he had to check out. So his family, meanwhile, moved from Chicago to Los Angeles, and Jeff joined them in Los Angeles and heard about this dynamic little Balchuva community on the beach. And he started going and it was captivated by the teachings of our first Torah teacher, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. You know, I love in your story how your future husband is inspired to go to Israel by a non-Jew. That's an unusual piece of a story. But it's not that unusual. When I was in graduate school that year, and I was missing Jeff so much, and I was—I really knew that we had to make a decision one way or the other, and I was still very conflicted. Um, I didn't make many friends that year, even though normally I have lots of friends. For some reason, that group just it wasn't my group. But one of the two or three good friends I did make was a Catholic girl 
who went to Mass a few times a week, and she said, I think this is wonderful. I think you should go for it. And also, I was a copy editor at a Jewish paper, and the senior copy editor was Catholic, and I would talk to her about my conflict too. And she said, and I remember she said it this way, she said, if I wasn't Catholic, I'd want to be Jewish. She said, it's so family-oriented. And, you know, so Jeff and I both had either Catholics or Christians pushing us in <laughs> pushing this direction. But our secular Jewish friends and relatives, nothing. I think that's very typical. But when you're away for that year, do you have a understanding with Jeff where he's saying, look, if, if this is going to work, you're just going to have to commit to an Orthodox lifestyle. Otherwise, like, don't even bother coming back. Like, is it is it that clear? Yeah, we weren't quite there. He came to visit me and he brought Blue Greenberg's book, How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household. He started reading me passages. And I said, okay, that's enough of that. Can we just go for a walk now? <laughs> Can we talk about <laughs> something else now? So I was a very hard sell. It's not like I became black hat yeshivish or anything, no. But my commitment just grew. When we started really talking about, should we get married? Can we get, is this, is this going to work? I felt like he kept moving the bar. When he started explaining to me about Taharas and Mishpacha, I said, that's it, I'm out of here, you know. But then I started thinking about it and started reading about it and thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe you, meaning me, maybe you're the closed-minded one. Maybe you think you know so much when you don't really know so much. I had to confront my own prejudice, my own bias, and it wasn't easy. For sure. And how are your two families reacting? You just mentioned them before. So I would think on the one hand, they're happy you have found someone, but now there's this element of religion overlaid in this romance. So how are the two families reacting to the possibility of the two of you coming together and moving towards Jewish observance? Mm. Well, Jeff's parents were very easygoing. They, you know, they liked me. I liked them. And it was going to be our home. And they were happy that Jeff was happy. Everybody loved Jeff. He was, he's just such a man. You can't not like him. You can't not respect him and see that he's so good and that he was great husband material. I saw he was good husband material. But my mother surprised me. My mother was very quiet in a lot of ways. But as it got close to the wedding, we were sitting down together. We were talking about something about the wedding. And out of nowhere, she says, are you really going to go to the mikvah? like my grandmother did in Russia? And she said it like I had just confessed to kleptomania or something like that. <laughs> I, write ab I write about that scene in, in the book. And I, I tried to reassure her. I said, I know that I'm evolving in a way that you didn't expect and in a way that I didn't expect. But we have discussed this a lot. I said, there, there is a mikvah that conservative Jewish women often go to. I told her where it was, said it's not just not just for the Orthodox anymore. And I said, I know that this is going to be good for our marriage. And she said, I just want you to be happy. I said, I know you do. And I know we will. And over time, our parents who are all unfortunately long gone, they saw they saw what we were building together with our four kids bouncing around and our Shabbos tables. They saw that there was joy in our lives and meaning. How can you argue with that? Yeah, my parents actually had a very similar reaction because at first 
they were they were against it and they were just reacting to the religious piece of it and they were saying why do you want to take on all these things and i think they were just viewing it as some kind of indictment over how they raised me like there must have been something they did wrong that i'm going to go in a different direction but then a couple of years later when they came to our house and we had kids and they saw the community piece of it they saw my kids had friends they saw what the shabbos meal was like they both were like, you know, I, I get it. Like, I understand now what the draw is to the lifestyle. And there's a lot of things that are beautiful about it. Absolutely. And it's true that a lot of parents feel threatened. I wrote about this once many, many, many years ago. And I interviewed a psychologist who was from, and she said a lot of times uh, Balei Chuva make a mistake, young Balei Chuva. They start complaining cost of tuition, which of course it's something to complain about, but mm-hmm. uh, the cost of kosher, the cost of the lifestyle, the, the, the challenges, the difficulties, if you start fetching about that in front of friends or, or family who were saying, well, I told you so, you know, that's really a mistake. But she also pointed out something just as important, if not more, that parents need to understand that you're actually affirming certain values that you got from them that you see in greater panorama, maybe, in a Torah-observant lifestyle or a more observant lifestyle. It's not that you're rejecting something, it's that you're taking some of the values that they really did show and expanding on it. So let's now go into the book, which you referenced a couple of times. So this wonderful story of how you came together ends up evolving into a memoir. So why did you decide to write that book? I had never had the idea of writing a memoir, but over the course of several years, and this is now going back probably starting maybe close to 10 years ago, there was a little boomlet in publishing with anti-Orthodox memoirs. A lot of them happened to have come from the Hasidic community. Some of them were written by people who had been women in particular, but not all, who had terrible experiences and wrote these really very angry and painful books. And they all immediately got a lot of attention. And all those books, whether the writers had any writing track record or not, immediately got a lot of media attention. They were lauded by the media. And I was so upset I was very, very upset. I thought, this this is their story. They have every right to tell their story. But that's not the only story. And somebody had to tell the other side of the story. And I looked around, and I didn't see anybody doing it. But I hemmed and hawed for a few years. I was afraid to do it. It was a different kind of work than I've ever done before. I knew that the chances of it being successful commercially were small, which is true for most books, frankly. But then I realized I have to do this. And once I decided to do it, I I felt very committed to the process. Rather than just talk about the book, we could bring it to life by you actually sharing an excerpt from the book. The book is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi Falling in Love with Faith. So would you be willing to do that now for us? Oh, absolutely. All right. So I'm skipping pretty much to almost the end of the book. The, the book covers many, many, many years. It, it, 
it deals a little bit with my childhood and a lot with my early and mid-20s. And I talk a lot about my difficulty and embarrassing moments in trying to get naturalized into the Balchiva community. So there's a lot of that. But this last bit is from one of the very last chapters in the book where I've already been living the life for a long time. And this is a look, a reflection rather, of how it feels to me after having lived the life for a long time and going out into the world looking like I'm an Orthodox Jew. And this is a bit from chapter 20 called Out in the World. My uniform makes me a marked woman wherever I go. At the mall, the park, the theater, even in the great outdoors of Yosemite, other observant Jews spot me right away, just as my radar detects their location coordinates from nearly a mile away. Being publicly identifiably Jewish can stir reactions from both Jews and non-Jews. Sometimes Jews who are not ritually observant go out of their way to make sure that Orthodox Jews realize that they are Jewish too. A fellow member of the tribe is apt to sashay over and offer a casual pleasantry, often tossing in a Hebrew or Yiddish word like a conversational wink. If it's Friday, the member of the tribe might say, I bet you're getting ready for Shabbos, using the Yiddish pronunciation and watching for your reaction. I love these opportunities to talk to other Jews who are outside my orbit, even for a few minutes. I'll smile and engage in conversation, not just because I'm usually feeling friendly, but because I want to show the MOTs that most Torah observant Jews are friendly and open. This is important public relations damage control because some Jews who tend to live in the most insular Orthodox communities and fearful of the influences of secular society encroaching on their lives can be decidedly unfriendly, even rude to outsiders. Every time I hear about these incidents, I am embarrassed and frustrated. Greeting others with a savor panimiafos, literally the expression of a nice face, one that conveys kindness, even people with whom we have had disagreements, is an important mitzvah. And you can't be a light upon the nations when you've got a dark, forbidding expression on your mug. I once tried out a laughter yoga class, and when the class was over, two other Jewish women peppered me with questions and observations. They didn't think I could come to events like this with men and women together. In fact, did I get out much at all? Did I grow up this way? I love that phrase, this way, as if orthodoxy is a handicap I was born with, like a club foot. When they saw that I welcomed their questions, they went deeper, plunging forward with one that rattles many non-Orthodox Jews. Isn't it true that Jews like you look down on Jews like us who don't keep Shabbat like you do? We're just as Jewish as you are, one of the women said emphatically. Oi, who knew that laughter yoga was such a great place to do Kiruv, Jewish outreach? I assured them that Jews like me did not look down upon them for not keeping the Sabbath. I told them that I myself hadn't kept Shabbat until my mid-twenties and have grown in my practice and appreciation slowly. Jews are obligated to love their fellow Jews, not reject them, I said, even though we do reject and judge certain actions 
that go against the Torah. They listened intently, and I hoped I was helping to mend even a little bit the rift that too often divides Jews along the observance spectrum. As I choose my outfits each day and finesse the angle of my beret just so, I'm also grateful for the opportunity and the responsibility of going out into the world easily identifiable as a Jew. So that was so beautifully read, and I can see probably why at an early age you knew you wanted to be a writer. And I have to tell you that that particular excerpt, it reminded me of something that my family is often thinking about when we go out, particularly for my boys. Like putting the kippah on your head is an outward expression to the world of who you are that people can pick up on within seconds. And you're always thinking, do I want to do these things because I want to show my Judaism with pride? Or do I not want people to judge me the first second that they approach me and let them get to know me before religion becomes a piece of the conversation? And that's kind of like what I heard loud and clear in the different situations you're finding yourself in, particularly like the yoga class. Someone wouldn't necessarily know to ask you any of that if there wasn't something obvious about the way you were carrying yourself that told them, oh, this person is observant. So what do you think about that balance between the two? And we're always struggling as a family with that. It's hard. And I think that these days with the very unfortunate rise in anti-Semitism here, it becomes more of an issue. I'm more concerned now that for all Jews who are out there looking Jewish, not just my own family, the whole family of Jews, are we going to become targets? But we don't become safer when we shed our Jewishness. I think sometimes it's the opposite. Yeah, and I think you also kind of touched on this just from reading the excerpt, but what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that non-observant Jews have about Jews that are living an observant life? The judgmentalism, I think. They feel judged, and sometimes they are judged. I mean, I'm sure we've both heard unpleasant conversations where we've heard some from Jews just speaking in a very demeaning way about some of the practices of, you know, people who are not observant at all. There's judgmentalism in both directions, and I think that everybody needs to try and tamp that down. We're supposed to give the benefit of the doubt in the same way that, you know, People like us did not grow up with the benefit of having an education teaching us what Torah values really were and what the practice really could look like. So how are we supposed to know? You know, I intuited that it was anti-feminist and just too old school to be relevant to my life. It couldn't have been further from the truth. So I think it's a lot of it is judgmentalism, fear of that. Right. And so the other thing that came through in that excerpt, aside from the emotion of it, is the humor. And there's so many Jewish people, especially even secular Jews, that end up in uh, writing, you know, working for shows. And so it's like, it's like a known thing that Jewish people end up in this world of humor. So how did that become a piece of your writing? From early on, from very early on, when I was a little kid, Irma Bombeck, you know, had become America's humorist. I write about her a lot in my blog series uh, because she was my role model, my professional role model. I wanted to grow up and be just like her, only Jewish. She made me laugh, and laughter, I realized, was so important, and especially 
again, referring back to the, the tragedy in our family, I realized that laughter and humor was not a luxury, it was a lifeline. And so I, I read her columns over and over. It just did something for me, and I started absorbing some of the lessons of how, how she wrote. So even the very first piece I ever sold to a regular newspaper was a humor piece. Um, the first several pieces uh, I wrote, uh, I, I sold to newspapers were humor essays. That's always been a part of my work. And it was very important to me that I infuse as much humor as possible into my memoir um, because there is humor and light. And a book like this can easily become too heavy. For sure. And you just touched on family. And I realized we didn't exactly get into this idea that you and Jeff come from these secular backgrounds. You decide to live an observant life and then you bring kids into the world. So Tell me a little bit about that journey and what you're telling your kids as they get older about your own backgrounds versus how you're choosing to raise them. Well, we have four wonderful kids, uh, three sons and a daughter in that order. They're all grown and married. Most of them have kids. We've got eight grandchildren, thank God. And we're so blessed. We're just so blessed. You know, when we started having kids, you know, you don't know what it's like to have kids until you have kids. But in the small Venice community that we spent the first many years, it was very con um, supportive. It was just all the, the families were very supportive of each other. The mothers were supportive of each other. We were in each other's homes with our little kids all the time. There was a big support network, which is really important. It's really important because it's such a lot of work to take care of kids, and especially if they're coming in rather rapid succession. In terms of how they understood us, well, it was funny. I won't say which one of us, Jeff or I, continued to use a certain Hebrew phrase, and we were off by one <laughs> letter. And the difference in that letter really changed the meeting. And our kids had been very polite about it. And finally, one of them couldn't stand it anymore. And he said it the right way. And then we realized, oh, what we had really said was not that <laughs> at all. It was very funny. And I remember kind of feeling like an immigrant myself, like my grandparents, because my kids would come home, the, the boys in particular. They're reading these Gemaras. They're reading Sfarim in all Hebrew. They're reading it. They're Rebbe inscribed it to them in Hebrew. And I can't even read the inscription. I said, what does it say? What does it say? And I'm thinking, I have a master's in journalism. I've written for all these big shop publications. And I'm asking my kid to tell me what the inscription says in his book. So it's humbling, but it's awesome. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I had the same thing because I remember uh, our head of school basically explaining to me that when your kids are born religious, but you weren't, your kids are going to achieve exactly what you want, which is for them to surpass you, right? It's just for you, it's going to happen in kindergarten. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, um, Rabbi Lappin's wife, Susan Lappin, who was also one of our teachers, told us in the early days, she said, never think that your kids will know more Torah than you. They may know more technically, their Hebrew may be more advanced, and yeah, they can read Rashi and all the rest of it. But don't ever let them think and don't let yourself think that they know more actual Torah than you. And 
I knew what she meant because it's easy to start to feel, oh my gosh, I'm such an ignoramus compared to my fourth grader, you know. But uh, you have to have the confidence that what you're you're teaching them a worldview, it's a Torah worldview that you truly understand. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't be living this way. And all of our kids are, are different. They're all individuals. One of them looked like he was heading in a much more secular direction during high school. We were concerned about it, but we knew he was going to have to make his own judgments. As it turned out, he ended up turning in the other direction, but he needed to have a little bit of rebellion there, and we just were watching it. But we are constantly in awe that our kids have come out all Torah observant. Sometimes younger parents ask us, what did you do? <laughs> you know, how did you do that? We said, we ju- we really, really tried to raise them al darko, everyone according to what they needed. We sent the boys to all different high schools. Now, that's a luxury that we had because we're in Los Angeles, but they were all, one went to a very modern school. The others were more yeshivish, but we sent them where we felt they would thrive. So watching them all choose the path of marriage and family and Shabbos is just... Nachas. Couldn't ask for anything more. Yes. Give our listeners a sense of what's on the horizon for you, both from a writing perspective and what are some goals you have from a Jewish perspective over the next couple of years? From a Jewish perspective, I always feel like I'm behind the eight ball. I start, you know... Nach Yomi, and I'm good for a couple months, and then I feel like I fall off the wagon, and then I don't get back on soon enough. I have, in the past couple of years, become much busier work-wise. I'm having more writing assignments, editing clients, and I love my work so much, it's hard for me to find that balance, especially with the kids, you know, obviously grown up, I have a lot more time to do this. So I'm trying to still, I'm always trying to find that balance between paying attention to my own Jewish growth and my own writing. I'm doing a lot more writing now for the Jewish Journal. There's a lot of my clips on my website, which is judygruen.com. I really love writing essays and features and trying to write about life from a Jewish perspective and sometimes there are humor essays and sometimes they are reflective and sometimes they're both. I try to have them be both. And uh, my bigger project is writing this blog series called Chasing the Byline, again about how my career evolved and also how the changes that I saw in society and in the world of journalism continued to direct me to further commitment to writing about Jewish issues as the world became more and more hostile really to our values. I felt that they're pushing this way and I'm going to push right back. So I'm writing about that. And those those blog episodes are also on my website. And that's been a great challenge. It sounds that way. And you're now up to the part of our podcast that we like to call the lightning rounds. I'm going to ask you five super fast questions. Are you ready? I hope so. And we'll find out. Okay, question number one. What is your number one tip for a writer who is suffering from writer's block? Just get anything down on the page. Anything. Write for 15 minutes, stream of consciousness. Don't think. Take a pen. Don't do it on computer. And see what comes out. 
Beautiful. So kind of like muscle through and just get something there. Don't even worry if it's going to get published. Muscle through. It doesn't have to be good. It just has to be something. And so for someone who has finished their first book and now says, okay, the book's done, but I haven't thought about marketing. Give our listeners a tip for how do you get someone to want to read your book? Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's not a quick question. (laughs) So give one tip. Ask yourself, who did I write this book for? Who is my target reader? Where can I find that reader online? What community will I find them? That, and then try and reach out from there and start conversations with them. Not just wave your book around, here's my book, but engage in conversations with them. Okay, so let's switch now from writing to Judaism. Let's say someone is listening to this podcast and saying, wow, this really inspired me. I want to take my first step to possibly becoming observant. Where do you think is a good place to start? I think a great place to start would be on one of the wonderful websites such as aish.com or um, chabad.org, Jew in the City. There's a wealth of a wealth of information, podcasts, articles for so many levels there. Start there. Then you can also email them questions and say, I live in this town. Can you recommend somebody I might be able to talk to who's nearby? A lot of conversations start like that. Oh, um, partners in Torah, you know, they'll, they'll match you up with somebody at your level. Yeah, I've been studying with the same Partners in Torah person for nine years. He helped me put up my first sukkah. I had my first uh, Rosh Hashanah experience with him. He came to my house once and did a uh, model Shabbos on a Thursday to show me all the steps. So that's a wonderful organization. It's terrific. And you know what? They're growing in demand, too. For sure. Uh, Okay, last question. Since you are a published author, I have to close by asking, what is your favorite book that's related to Judaism? Oh, Well, Jeff and I are huge fans of the late Rabbi Sachs. And of course, he he had, I don't know how many books he had published by the end of his life. But his Covenant and Conversation series is magnificent. And we have all of them. And for each Parsha, he's got about four essays that are brilliant. We love those. Beautiful. And you are officially out of the lightning round. So I want to remind our listeners who heard that beautiful excerpt from you a little while back that the book is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi Falling in Love with Faith. You can find it in bookstores, Amazon. There's an audiobook version of it as well as on e-readers so our folks can go check that out. And I want to thank you for sharing your story on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. It's been a delight and an honor. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.